0: hallelujah there there are two ways you can live your life two there's only two religions on the planet too we could talk about that forever let's just stick with the two ways two ways to live your life running from death and running toward death maybe you've seen the commercials about i believe it's the marines right they run toward danger Uh, The the Christian walk, it's a marathon, it's a journey, but it's toward death, and it's toward death unashamed and unafraid, to the level where you might even run toward it sometimes because you're not so worried about dying. The last few years, I think, have challenged a lot of us to ask what that means. How afraid am I? How much will I let my fears dictate to me? How I live in my neighborhood with my family and who I vote for? All that kind of stuff. But what matters most to me out of these last few years is not what that does to our politics. Although I'll say that abortion clinic downtown, I care about politics for that reason, right? Uh, but, but it has a lot less to do with, with politics and a whole lot more to do with peace of conscience. That while I am journeying through this life, what I want is the peace that passes understanding. What I'm after is the secret of contentment, which means that when I see my grave staring at me with its jagged teeth and its lying words about how it's the end of me and how meaningless life's going to be now because, oh, poor me, I just dive in. Because I know it's the moment that I transform. I transform from this sinful condition in which I yet sojourn into nothing but the new man he has promised me I also am already. Or if you can think about it this way, the day you die is the day you finally get to feel it in a good way. Up till then, it's just foretaste and shadows and hunches and faith. faith. But the day you die is the day it becomes sight. And that's the question, then. Why are we running from death so much since it's lost its sting? Okay. It's still going to hurt when someone you love dies because you're going to be without them for a time if they're a Christian. But that's completely different than you don't know what happens to them. You don't know where they are. You don't know what happens next because, ah, you might be a butterfly in the next life, but I can't decide. And at the moment, I'm scared, so I'm going to freak out. That's how most people's religions work. They wax eloquent until it hits the road and then they are afraid and they grab their idols with both hands and they squeeze them until they kill the idol too, usually. We're free from all of that. Now, now we get to just shed the idols as we go. You can pick it up. You can use it as a piece of wood, as a piece of stone. What's it good for? A hammer? Use it, but don't worship it. And you walk toward death. Knowing that whatever you build is going to crumble, the hammer itself will fail someday, but that's okay. Because the children born again into a living hope in Jesus, well, he's going to establish the work of our hands in the life of the world to come. So why wouldn't you run toward that tomb? That's the question. Somebody could be really cynical. And be like, Are you saying, Pastor Fish, that we should suicide ourselves so we can all go to heaven? Like, okay, you jerk. No, I'm not saying that. You're an unfair conversation partner. I don't want to talk to you. But what I'm saying is that we don't need to be afraid of death to the level where I can actually look forward to it. Like in prayer, I can say, Jesus, that day is going to be a good day. My death's going to be a good death. Why? Because I'm going to confess, God willing, the name of Jesus. Deo Valente. Deo Valente, meaning God willing. I will, God willing, on the day I die, Deo Valente, confess the name of Jesus. So I will know at that day, in spite of everything I've done to try to be the best man I can be, which generally means not dying and leaving stuff behind for other people to use, I will know that nonetheless, I'm laying down my burdens now. I'm going to sleep now. And when I wake up from that sleep, I won't be tired anymore. I won't be weary. Uh, I won't be on the journey that I'm on. I'll be at a destination which is a whole nother further up and farther in reality. Uh, But from here to there, again, this walk is real. This walk is filled with pain. This walk has enemies and trials. And yet this walk as a people is the great gift of life together. Uh, So what we're going to be doing as we talk about that journey in the scriptures together while we each in our various families and neighborhoods throughout the week are living our lives but we're coming here together to unify our minds in what the bible says about our lives so that just as we prayed a moment ago when we live our lives they look like or even feel like what the bible says which let me remind you we're lutherans after all does not mean perfection does not mean you're gonna stop sinning any day but it does mean you can walk with your head held upright in hope and confidence that God is with you and that your baptism into him is an anointing that he's not going to take back. You can throw it away, but he's not taking his promises back. Yeah. There's power in this. There's verve in this. Yeah, Running toward the tomb, being unafraid of death, gives you zest for life. It's kind of amazing. You would think that that staving off death would make you live better, but it doesn't. It makes you live like a coward. Knowing that the tomb is just God's gift of a sleeping place until your day of resurrection, now, now today, you can sacrifice all. Smile on your face while you do it, dance while the world burns, and give a hand to help the person who's falling at the same time. That's who you are in Jesus. That's the journey. Running toward the tomb is where it then again starts. Not you running toward your tomb. I've been talking about that, but in the text this morning, John chapter 20 is page 906 of your pew Bible. If you'd like to turn there, John chapter 20 starts by running toward not your tomb, but Jesus' tomb. This is it. This is what changed the world. This is why Christianity is not any other religion. They all say nice stuff about loving people. Well, almost. (laughs) Tangent, you ready? Uh, This will be about a one minute tangent. You ever hear of the mound builders? You know the mound builders are? They're the American indigenous civilization that's not the Mayans and the Aztecs, but they built these giant mounds all over like this part of America. You can go see them down towards St. Louis and stuff. You know, we know their religion. They wrote it down. It's like 12 different points. It's like this, never tell the truth, never trust anybody, get what you can while you can. That was their religion. Christians have a different walk. Our walk is love. And is founded in confidence that God loves us. And that moment is proven once and for all, well, with the empty tomb. So why wouldn't you run there, right? All right, so here we go. Chapter 20, verse 1, bottom of page 906. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away. Do you remember from Mark 16 last week? Almost all of that was there in Mark 16. Almost all of it. But there was like other stuff too. There were other women, right? Um, uh, They are talking about who's going to roll away the stone. He talks about how big the stone is, right? But same story otherwise. Um, For those of you who are new this week, we did Mark 16 last week and dealt with the fact that the early versions of Mark end earlier than the English in your Bible. And they end with the women running away scared. And so what I want to show you how is how, like, even if Mark doesn't have the long ending, like, we know they didn't run away scared forever because it says here they ran away, and it's going to tell what she did. Um, See Verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Also in Mark, Mark has the angel tell Mary, go tell Peter. But, well, she did it. There it is, right? So again, we don't lose anything with this textual debate about the end of Mark, but we do see the same reality of Sunday morning happening here. The eighth day, the first day of the week, the new day of creation. They go expecting Jesus to still be dead because they don't believe it and they find that it's not. And she then again runs to tell Peter about this. What's she tell Peter at the end of verse two? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. A really, really interesting confession of both faith and not faith at the exact same time. Notice she thinks he's still dead, right? The body's still dead. We don't know where it is, but he's certainly not risen. But then she calls him the Lord, which you might not think much of that. But for a Jew to say that, that means God. <laughs> it's like, he's God. Uh, they don't know where they put God's body. You know, that's kind of what she says here. You can see like the growth and you, like the moment of faith is right there. And yet there's confusion. And what's the confusion? Well, the lie. The lie that's not going to get understood until they see him face to face. That's part of John's point, is that for the early resurrection, uh, the word itself wasn't enough. They actually needed Jesus, who is the word, as enough physically there. Mary, he'll say to Mary. Thomas, he'll say to Thomas. So call them by name. Put your hands in my side. All that kind of stuff. Right? So the unbelief that we see among them now, it's not like they're all going to hell. It's more like they just are super ignorant Christians. They don't even know how to use their faith. They're not even sure they got it. And they're fleeing and things like that. And yet here is this spark of news. Uh, I skipped over one piece before verse three that, you know, John probably is the one referenced as the disciple whom Jesus loved there. So Peter's with this other disciple um, whom Jesus loved. That's really the best way to translate it if you're going to be literal, Um, but in English, it sounds a bit arrogant, right? As if Jesus had favorites and John was his favorite. Um, That's not really what John's getting at here. I think the best idea is that most of the men in the apostolic band, Peter, James, you know, Bartholomew, these guys are all at least 25 and some of them up in their 40s and maybe 50s, maybe even older than that. Um, And John would be like the only one who's 17. And so for three years, you got this group of 12 guys, plus a bunch of others traveling around the countryside, like with crowds of people, right? Like they're, they're changing the world in front of the world. And this 17-year-old kid's right there. And Jesus is kind of always coming up behind him and poking his ear or something, you know, um, giving him a little flick or the wet wheelie or, or something to like say, hey, I got, John, I'm here with you, man. Like, don't worry about it. You're okay. So there's like a kid brother thing going on, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think we should take it that way. It's also then um, John's signature on the book a little bit. Right? He Here I am in the book, but I'm not going to use my name. That would be too too glorious, right? Mark does the same thing with himself. I didn't talk about this when we looked at that text on Good Friday, but there's this young man who runs away and loses his cloak, a blanket cloak, and he ends up naked fleeing. Now, that's probably Mark. Now, why doesn't he say it's me? I mean, <laughs> really, (laughs) Uh, uh, because he's confessing his sin and he's confessing his witness at the same time, right? And so John, see him kind of in the same boat here a little bit. So in any case, John's with Peter. Peter hears Mary tell him they've stolen the body. (laughs) The first argument against the resurrection, they've stolen the body. We'll leave that for another time. Um, Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. I just wanted you to see this, right? So like Jerusalem, where are they in the city? I don't know, but it's it's a city on a mountain, and there's this big valley, and then there's like another hill, and like it's, it's a big place. I mean it's not Rockford, Rockford's huge, but um it's a it's a big place. And the streets are like made of stone or dirt, the houses are cobblestone or some sort of Putty or stucco or whatever, but like you have this like ancient world, no electricity feel. It's still super early in the morning, and these two men are running through the streets of the city. Which you remember, I said this a little while ago, you don't do that. Like you're not out for a jog. Are there troops coming? What's going on? They're just running. And in fact, they're running so much that the younger guy leaves the older guy in the dust. He out races him. No, I wonder what. What Peter's thinking you know, as, hmm, as he runs, I don't know. Uh, but he outruns him. He gets to the tomb. Okay, so I'm going to have us pause here and read a little bit out of order to try to show something I think John is doing with the tomb and running toward the tomb and going into the tomb that applies to Peter for our sakes. Um, and to do that, we're going to have to go to the very end of the book and then kind of read backward a little bit. So turn the page uh, to... Uh let's see here. No, I'm sorry. It was on that page. Bottom of the page in the right column, um, verse 18. After Jesus reinstates Peter, Peter denies Jesus three times on the night of his betrayal. And then three times here by the seashore in a miraculous catch of fish, Jesus forgives Peter and then commands him to care about his sheep, to feed his sheep. Um, so, The last of those statements, feed my sheep, is at the end of verse 17. Then verse 18, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, (laughs) um, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go if they're like, that's a weird thing to say, Jesus, John interprets it for us in the next line. He says, this was to show by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. So can I put it in English for you? Uh, Hey, Peter, feed my sheep. And when they crucify you, I know you won't want that, but it'll be okay. Follow me. And off he goes. It's quite a thing to say to anybody. Yeah. Um, and then, well, what's Peter do? <laughs> verse 20, next verse is fun. So Peter turned and saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about this man? I love it. So Peter, you're going to get crucified. You're not going to like it, but follow me. He's like, well, what about John? Like him too, right? Am I alone in this? Yeah, and, and it's going to go on, right? Uh, Jesus says to him, I'm not going to answer your question. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? Uh, if you follow me. Verse 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, that's John, was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not going to die. Uh, but if it is my will that he, John, remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness. All right. So whether or not john is still alive today i i I think that the easy answer is no he died uh around 105 110 uh, a.d somewhere in ephesus uh sometime after mary the mother of our lord died i mean she would have been there as well uh under his care uh for a, a, a amount of time so uh the issue isn't really so much john's resurrection here although i i john's death i find it funny that peter wants to to know about john but the issue is both John and Peter knew Peter was going to die first. And they knew it was going to be a brutal death. And they knew that they wouldn't even want that death. That Peter wouldn't want this death. Um, and uh, knowing that then, John builds this into the story a little bit. Um, so let's let's go back to the, the gospel reading that we started with. We're in the gospel, excuse me. Let's go back to the uh, chapter 20, where they get to the tomb, right? And John outruns Peter. i got to find the verse. Uh, we're going to look at uh, verse four, right? The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And you get this little bit stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon came following him and he went into the tomb. So you got these two guys running through the streets of old school Jerusalem. Peter sees John getting further away. He rounds a corner and now he can't catch up, but he knows where he's going. He's running with everything that he's got toward this proclamation of an empty tomb. He sees now there's John standing by the grave, looking at it. He just runs right past him into the grave. Like I, I really think it didn't happen this way, but I totally picture him belly flopping. Like he's just out into the grave. because that's what the gospel of peace gives you. Peter forgot about himself. He forgot about what he was supposed to do. He forgot about his needs. He forgot about his doubts. He forgot about the shaming lies he told himself and he ran into the grave with everything that he had because that's where he thought he'd find Jesus. Now the good news again is he's more than finding Jesus now, right? He's not just finding the teacher who was a teacher. He's finding the King who is God. And of course, that'll happen by the end of the night as Jesus appears to them. At the moment, verse 5, excuse me, verse 7, 6 and 7, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So there between uh, verse 7 and verse 5, about these cloths lying inside the tomb, um, this would be Tangent about three minutes. Uh, this would be where the Shroud of Turin conversation comes up, and it's Easter season, which means the Shroud of Turin was on the Discovery Channel like two weeks ago, probably. So it's it's in the air right now. This this blanket, this wrapping that's been found, it's in I believe a monastery in Europe, and something about it is really weird. It's got these like radiated scars on it that look like a crucified body and it has scars on the face and head and, and it seems to be impossible. You can't even make or fake this thing. And so, well, then it must be the, the, doc, no, the document, the, uh, the cover that was on Jesus, right? It was the cover that was on Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, the glorious light that burst for him left forever a mark of witness on this little cloth. And so now you can know for sure Jesus has risen from the dead because of this piece of cloth. That's where I don't want to go though. Did you did you follow me all that way? Or did you say, wait a minute, Pastor, you went off track? I hope you did. It was okay up until I said, now we can trust in Jesus. Why is that? Because I don't know anything about this route of Turin, actually. I've heard stories about it, I've watched documentaries on it. Don't don't ever confuse a documentary for knowledge, please. You haven't studied anything if you've watched a movie about it, that's not how it works. The Shroud of Turin is a fascinating thing, but the issue is that in this text we just read, there's more than one cloth on Jesus. And the Shroud of Turin is a single full-body wrap that goes over him multiple times. So my question as a pastor who loves the Bible is, what's the Bible talking about then? If this shroud over in Europe, this relic that people travel to pray to, is really his. Now, I'm not saying it's not, Right. There may have been you know, more than one here and one of those linens wrapped all the way around them. It is in fact the Shroud of Turin and it is in fact a witness like Ebenezer of old to the historicity of the Old Testament. That's all good as long as you don't put more trust in the Shroud of Turin that you put in the Bible. You wanna trust the Bible and what it says. And as a result, see the world and say, ah, oh, the Bible says this about that, not the other way. See the world and look in the Bible and say, where does it say what the world says? That's the wrong way. We want to go from the text to our lives. And to me, this issue of the Shroud in Turin and the fact that my complaint, my only complaint about the Shroud of Turin ultimately is that the Bible says more than one linen. And I've never had anyone seriously take me up on answering that question. I've tried. I'd love to see the scholarship on it, proving to me that they use multiple linens and the Shroud is just like one of the multiples, blah, blah, blah. In any case, was that more than three minutes? Shroud of Turin. is something to argue about for no good reason if you like, yeah. so there you are. Um, just don't excommunicate anyone over it. Ah, coming back to the, the more important stuff, right? Uh, so the other disciple, verse eight, who had reached the tomb first also went in, John does die, or he goes in the grave at least he says, right? So see how that parallel between the end story and here and now there's some metaphor going on. Um, it's gonna happen again, uh, one more time. He goes in first, uh, he saw and believed. Wasn't he an apostle? Hadn't he cast out demons? Didn't he confess Jesus was the Christ? And the answer to all that is yes. But what did he not yet believe in? And the answer is the resurrection. And he goes in now and he sees and he believes, but he he kind of doesn't still. It'll say he believes again later. And he'll say in a moment, well, it says, as yet they did not understand the scripture, right? No one's really got it yet. That he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. Right. And isn't that really what Mark's message was again and again? Like, here's Jesus, not going to hide, not going to stop, going to blow you away. And yet nobody can figure out, oh, that's the son of God. Yeah. Here he is saying again and again, I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to rise. And they're at best saying, no, you won't. And then after that, they're like, let's argue about who gets to be number two. Like That's the world that they're in. And so in that sense, there's a lack of faith. And that lack of faith is because he hasn't he hasn't bought them yet. He didn't die yet. He didn't rise yet. And so there's a there's an Old Testament reality still in place, like a veil, like a cover on their on their life in Christ that the resurrection is going to unleash. And the beautiful, beautiful news is that unleashing is is here for you now, today. It's not something that's only kept for them or for the apostles or for the Jews or for any particular group. It is the unleashing of your conscience and the certain knowledge that God is for you and not against you, and the resurrection of Jesus proves this for the whole universe, and you're part of the whole universe, and if you'd like some more confidence in the matter, then we'll wash you with water in the name of Jesus Christ, and declare to you that your sins are forgiven, and you can have confidence in that, and if you still don't have enough trust, guess what? Every week there's a meal that tests your faith. We eat it, I give you some bread, and I tell you it's Jesus, and you have to either believe it or not, but it's there so you can believe it, And every time you believe it, guess what? You just grew in the faith one more time. Again, today, alive, anew. Uh What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Understanding the scripture. That's the issue I want us to work on as we journey. That's why you would run like someone in a race when we talk about, say, living the Christian life or maybe just living today. (laughs) So in trust, uh, can you turn to 1 Corinthians 9? This is on page 956, 957, excuse me. You heard it read a little bit ago. We're going to go a little further in the text. Um, uh, yeah, go a little further in the text than, uh, than what we heard read. But again, the issue here is I want us to spend time as a people Trying to become more understanding of who we are as a people. And the way to do that is to share a common story that we all know is about us, right? It's not a story we made up, like you know, Barney the Dinosaur or Star Wars. Although notice how Star Wars creates tribes. It really does. You see someone who likes Star Wars, they're like tattooed with it, right? It's it's tribal. Huh? So what I want is for us to be tribal about our knowledge of the Bible. That we would know the same stories, speak the same words, and over time then grab tongues that are capable of communicating truth better than the lying tongues around us. Because that's again the promise of the New Testament that we're going to be, well, set apart, right? Uh, wholly different than the world around us. And the thing that makes us different isn't how great we are, it's largely what we say. But what we say then is going to impact how great we are we just define greatness not as who gets to be in charge but in who well who gets to suffer today and love anyway that's that's the greatness so this is what paul's getting at in in first corinthians 9 as he's defending his apostleship to a congregation that he started can you imagine he plants this church gets it going leaves some people in charge heads away And then he starts hearing that people are there saying that all he wanted was their money. And so they shouldn't listen to him anymore because he was just trying to get from them. The pain that must have caused him, that lie. I can't imagine. He's like across the sea. And he's hearing this about these people who he had brought to Christianity. They weren't Christians that came to church. These were pagans who converted to Christianity, and now they're being told that the Apostle of God converted on the Damascus Road is a liar, a thief, and a charlatan. He's going to defend that, and in it, in defending it, he's going to insist that that this is real for him. Right? Uh, let's start with um. Let's start with verse. 22, uh, I don't want to go too far back before what we're looking at, but it's, it's kind of worth it. To the weak I became weak, he said, that I might win the weak. Uh, it, it doesn't mean, you know, to the false teacher I became a false teacher so that the false teachers could be happy with me. And It doesn't mean, you know, to the person who abused me by saying, put the best construction on it, I had to be silent and let them lie to me and abuse me. And it doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that I learned to see other people first. And so as I'm in this conversation with whomever it might be, one of my real questions is, like, where are they? What are they dealing with, right? And you, you know how this is. Like someone comes in, how you doing? And if you say anything more than good, uh, there's not a conversation that's really meant to happen at that point. Right? But isn't it different when you say, how you doing? And they say something, and you listen, and you say, wow, so tell me more. What a different kind of hospitality that is, right, to the week I became Weak? What? I don't want to talk to that person. They're sad. Yeah. So cry with those who cry, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's who we are. That's the battle now, day by day, and in in your home, right? Not just here, but in your home. So the weak I became weak. I became all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Not an argument for abandoning scripture or healthy traditions, but definitely an argument for not arguing about minutia and focusing on the others around you. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Remember that word, gospel, good news. Announcement of victory. And the gospel particularly, we looked at Romans last year. The son of David is risen from the dead. That's the good news. The king of Israel is risen from the dead. That's the good news. From there, forgiveness of sins flows. From there, atonement flows, right? But it all starts with, he is risen. Hallelujah. I do it all for that, he says, that I might share in its blessings. Which is cool, too, because it's not all about the future. It's actually about the present. Like, if you're a Christian and you're living as a Christian with the hope of Christianity, and then you lose that, I promise you, your life's going to feel worse. You're going to be telling yourself you feel better while you drink more and party more and seek all sorts of other stuff more. Ah, I'm finally free. I can do what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're hiding and running from things at that point. It's going to feel worse. Uh, you feel better as a Christian suffering than you do as a non-Christian not suffering. Fact. Yeah declared word of God even. So in that regard, Paul just wants to share in the hope that outlasts this life, right? And so he does everything to speak more about it, because for him at least, seems like he might forget if he doesn't say it one more time. I would suggest there's a lesson to be learned there. That what you know isn't permanent. It comes and it goes. uh, And what you put in is going to stick and rattle around. And if you want it to stick for good, you got to put it back in more and more and more. And so this is where he gets this encouragement in verse twenty four and following about taking your own discipleship, your study of the Bible seriously. He says, "Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. and i'm I'm pretty confident I don't have to explain to you the metaphor, right? Uh, that in any given competition, there's really only one winner. It's great. Second's good. If you all get medals, I guess that's okay. But really, all the kids know the guy who scored seven goals is the cool kid. Like everyone knows that, right? So Paul says I mean, since this is obvious that whatever you do competitively, you do to win, well, then run as if you want to win your life. Knowing that your life is not a competition against other people for more stuff or for more fun or for better experiences. Uh, But your life is to live every single day knowing that God is your father, that you are his son, and you inherit something far beyond this perishing present and evil age. And so while you're here, you have the capacity to treat all these things as the gifts that they are, which nonetheless are going to perish with their use, which gives you a tremendous freedom to walk away from anything at any time ever because you know it's going to burn. That's power right there to know it's all going to burn and to know you're going to sing hallelujah when it does, that it's not bad news, that you're actually walking towards something better. Run as though you plan to get there. Not because if you don't run, you won't get there. Pastor said, if you don't run, you'll fall away. That's not a sin. I said, the joy is in knowing that you can't really fall away. Just run. You're going to stumble. You're going to collapse. You're going to hit your head. That's fine. Just keep running. Where? Toward the tomb. Which one? The empty one? (laughs) The one that Peter saw. The one that Paul is going to experience. We'll hear about that again soon. Uh, And then that means yours. Yours is empty right now. Run toward it. You're going to dive in and you won't even be there. Just your body will be there. But you're going to be with Christ in heaven. Uh, And someday, of course, he's going to put you back in that body. Kaboom. Light and everything. I mean, trout of tearing all the way around, right? We all get it done run toward it not as one again who doesn't want the prize verse 25 every athlete exercises self-control in all things just uh, the first half of the verse but it's, it's worth it there just for self-control right like it, it always has blown my mind I mean we've we've done so much as church and I mean Missouri Synod I'm sure that this is the same across other denominations when it comes to trying to keep kids in church trying to keep the youth Christian. And over, I don't know when it started, 60, 70, 80 years, we have put more and more energy into trying to to get these kids to want to be here. And we've had less and less of the kids want to be here. And yet, if I say, hey, you know what? Every Saturday morning, all the kids in this church, 7 a.m., we're going to be here, and we're going to study the Bible every week, forever, and you're not allowed to miss. Uh, we would either have fewer members, or you wouldn't come. But if I'm a coach, and I say, next Saturday, be in Madison by 7 a.m., guess what? Your kids playing, you're all going to be there. They exercise self-control in all things. Why don't we? Is Paul's question. Why don't we use self control where it matters? Now, again, I'm not asking for perfection. I'm asking for you to want to, <laughs> and I think you do, right. So hopefully, this isn't condemning you. This is encouraging you. You're like, that's right. Let's run to the tomb. Let's do it. Let's run. Yeah. Or, well, verse twenty six. Do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I don't want to miss verse twenty five. But you know, boxing is one beating the air. If you're going to practice punching. Practice punching so as to hit. If you want to have your life improve in the scriptures, well then read the scriptures. Don't go read some other book about the scriptures. Read the scriptures themselves, right? We still give away portals of prayer. Every couple of months, I'll have someone ask me, where's the new portals of prayer? And I'll go, yeah, I don't know. It's probably in the back. It comes in the mail. We put them out. Um, We'll find you one. Because I'm happy to give them to you, but I'll, I'll be very frank. I could care less about portals of prayer. Why? Well, because it's not the Bible. It's one Bible verse and then a story that doesn't have a lot to do with that Bible verse every day. Sometimes there's a reference. It's about Jesus. It's about being good. It's fine. But I'd rather you read Psalm 16 every day, Psalm 23 every day, Psalm 43. I don't know. Pick one. Read it every day till you know it, right? Psalm 125, good place to start. If you want to experience growth in your faith, Eat it. And my saying this now is because I think you, as a field, you're ready for me to say this. You're ready for me to throw this seed out. You're ready for this journey. And what we're going to find as we walk over the next several years through various scriptures, all helping us want to run toward the tomb more because we know it's the good news. We know it's the gospel. We know on the other side is paradise. As this happens, you're just going to find more and more gladness out of what you get here. More and more joy out of what you get here. The only thing, deo valente, that can stop that is that we argue about stupid stuff like the Shroud of tear. right? If, if that's what we're going to get into, right, th- then we'll end up divided. But if we unify around what the text actually says, the world, the gates of hell, the devil and all his hordes, they can't shut us down. Ever. They won't. Huh? So do not run aimlessly. Do not box us when it beats the air. Hit to strike. He mentions that they do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable. That was back in verse 25. And again, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been taking this uh, Japanese wrestling classes. I haven't for a couple of weeks. I hurt my knee, so I miss it. Brazilian jiu-jitsu, that's right, what they call it. Um, and I've, I've gone to uh, two tournaments now, and I came back with a, a shiny medal. It's not made of gold, but it looks like gold. I came back with two shiny medals that they look like silver. They're not silver, but they look like silver. And I got home, and I what do I do with this? I mean, I'm, I'm not seventh grader anymore, right? I'm not going to hang it on my wall. Like, it's, it's, it's not what, what gives me pride anymore. This piece of metal, what gave me pride was going to the event and, and getting on the mat and fighting other 40-year-old men like to the strangulation. Like, that gave me pride, right? But the piece of metal, the perishable thing, what good is it? That's Paul's point. It's fine. You can go after the perishable wreath. He's not saying never commit play, play in sports, but he says, do you realize that the real race is for an imperishable wreath? That imperishable wreath is your mind, your soul, your heart, inside your body, but your mind, your soul, your heart right now. So grab it. You're immortal now. You've heard me say that before, I hope. Right. Uh, so then Paul encourages us in verse 27 to be like him, discipline his body, keep it under control. let after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Um, I told you we're going to go a little before. I don't want to take us the full time here, but I want to at least get down to, yeah, verse six. So I'm going to read chapter ten, verses one through six, and then we're just going to close by talking about uh, verse six as our step into the journey going forward. Uh, so uh, Paul says, "I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud." and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So all of that said, the people that came out of Egypt, that walked through the Red Sea, that saw God in a fiery pillar and cloud, they all were believers. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. It is a a bit of a warning there. I walk in danger all the way. The hymn says, right? But I think verse four says, I walk with Jesus all the way, right? So yeah, the danger is real, but the one who is truly dangerous is on our side. He's not just holding your hand. He's got you in the palm of his hand. And remember the palm of his hand's got a big hole in it. And put it right over you, put you inside, take you wherever he wants you to go. That's who your God is. And so journey with me. Let's run toward the tomb, not afraid, knowing that he is risen. risen. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise for prayer.